I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Over the years, Nashville has turned into a hotbed for tourism. Need some evidence? Just look around. With three professional sports teams, world-class music venues, and hotels popping up seemingly by the minute, our city has become a global tourist destination. But how did that come to be? Butch Spiridon has some answers. Later this hour, the longtime leader of the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corp Corporation will join us to reflect on the past three decades before his retirement later this month. What questions do you have for Butch Spiridon? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. But first, Nashville's Homeless Impact Division has been moving ahead on what it refers to as a housing surge, which is the city's effort to move people from encampments into transitional housing. This comes after the city cleared out two encampments around the start of the year. WPLN contributor Tasha A.F. Lemley has been following this story for a long time. She recently shadowed outreach workers and is here with us now to share the latest on this effort. Hey, Tasha, really great to have you here. Hey, Khalil, it's good to see you. So, you know, you've been reporting on homelessness and how the city is trying to help people for many, many years. Now the Homeless Impact Division is continuing on this path of closing additional campsites and moving people into housing. What can you tell us about these efforts? Okay, so they're starting what they're calling phase two of this housing surge. Um, and in phase one, they, they're saying they moved effectively 135 people out of campsites and into mostly transitional housing. And um, so by phase two, it means pretty soon they're going to be announcing which campsites are going to be targeted next for this housing surge. And um, and yeah, see how they can get people out of campsites and into have a roof over their head. OK, so for the people who are living at these sites, what's this what's the experience like? Yeah, so this is. This is people's homes. And I think that's one of the, the very first things I learned when I went to a campsite for the first time nearly 20 years ago um, is this is you're walking into someone's living room. And so they're tight communities there. There's investment. There's financial and emotional investment in these spaces. And um, so outreach workers that come in, they're trying to understand, you know, where someone's coming from and also be encouraging them to leave. Um, it's it's, you know. You're being moved out of your home. Mm, I imagine establishing trust is really hard. It is hard. Um, and it can be a really long process to get someone where they'll even talk to you for the first time, much less talk about making some major changes. You know, thinking about that difficulty with trust, it's got to be especially hard if someone feels that Metro or other groups haven't really followed through in the past. What are the what were the campers saying to you when the camp? out in Madison. Yeah. So this was a really short visit at a really small camp. And, um, I think we saw maybe, maybe about four people and there's one woman that spoke to us. She, um, has been unhoused off and on for about 10 years and she was expressing she's interacted with a lot of people and a lot of organizations over those times and doesn't feel like she's been helped. Um, I think we have a clip about that. People and organizations say that they're going to help, but they don't they come in and you never see them again. And people, they judge you out here when you're out here. They automatically assume that you're on drugs or you're an alcoholic or you're a prostitute. And that's not true. So no matter where you go, for me, I just keep getting thrown out like trash. 
So she only spoke to reporters for about two minutes and then felt like she couldn't keep going on. So this was a really emotional process for her. And um, and we'll get into this in a second, but kind of a surprise visit that day. Yeah, it really hit me when she said that she felt like she was thrown out like trash. That's really heart-wrenching. And it sounds like a tough moment. What was it like? Tell me, what was it like for you going through there, going out there with these officials and these journalists to meet these folks? So I'm going to be honest. This was a really uncomfortable visit. Mm. Um, you know, I, like I mentioned, I've been visiting campsites off and on for about 20 years. And many of those visits involve hearing people's stories, recording people's stories, photographing people and learning about their lives. And in this case, there were 17 of us entering a campsite with no advance notice, most of who were whom were reporters, mm. and uh, I want to say, you know, I'm I'm a very short person. I've got a little recorder in my headphones and my mic. That's one thing. The the television, our television reporters that have to go in there, they have to go in with large tripods. You know those cameras that you see. You know that that take an entire person just to manage this one camera. So there is a tremendous amount of people walking into someone's living room, and um and the you know. Metro told me they didn't have time to, you know, let people know that they were coming, that they'd made a, a quick decision um, the night before about who, you know, which campsite was going to be visited for this, um, you know, for this visit. And they didn't have advance notice. And um, so this was a really uncomfortable visit. Um, yeah, usually when I've gone in to do stories, I go in with an outreach worker who's already made an intimate relationship, already asked someone, hey, I've got this person. They'd like to hear your story. They're working on this or that. You know, how do you feel about it? Or if we go in unannounced, it's just the two of us and I'm with someone who's already built relationships at that campsite or I'm at a place that I've already built relationships. And so this was much different. I think I, I, I do understand that Metro wanted um, wanted the public to be able to see what do these campsite assessments is what we were doing look mm. like and um, wanted them to see and hear the voices of, of people who are living there. Um, I wish they had had time to let them know before. I understand because what you're saying is you almost felt like you, you've been doing this for such a long time, but you almost felt like an intruder going into these spaces. There was one time I, I was kind of like actually kind of hiding by a tree that I was I was like I was I was a little rattled mm. and um felt very uncomfortable for, for the people that we were coming in on. You know, as you told us, you've spent a lot of time really getting to know people in these circumstances, and you've met folks who've seemed stuck. You also seen people successfully overcome this over, and over time, finally transition into housing. Tell me, for those who don't want to leave a camp, what's this experience like for them? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's just, Khalil, like if you imagine if someone came and asked you to leave your house, it's the same. Um, and in some ways, you can imagine it's even tougher because you've, I'm going to make an assumption, you have a bank account, um, you've got an ID, mm -hmm. and we may be talking to people that don't have other options other than what the person in front of them is offering. And um, really, really scary, angering, paralyzing, um, hopeful. Uh, some people are really excited, you know, like, oh my gosh, someone's finally listening to me. Here we go. And so as you can imagine, all these different emotions. Um, yeah, but uh, one place that comes to mind is um, Brookmead Park, that, that we had a lot of people there that is part of this phase one that we mentioned earlier, housing surge. And so a lot of people got moved out of there. And, um, you know, I saw reactions, you know, the the whole rainbow of emotions from, yeah, get me out of here, let's go, mm. to uh, one woman comes to mind. Her name is Kiana. And there were just a couple of women living independently who were some of the final holdouts at Brookmead. Dozens of people had already left and uh, just a couple women remain. And, um, 
And I think we have a clip from Kiana who um, really didn't want to leave her home. Let's listen. A lot of us are broken, you know, for different reasons, you know, um, maybe shunned by their family or just, you know, um, uh, psychologically, you know, may not be okay or just whatever it is. But I feel like you never know what someone's going through. So it's a lot easier to say something nice or to show compassion than to be hateful or go out of your way to block someone who's just trying to get their life back together. Now, Kiana's situation, from what I understand, and I'm an outsider, but from what I understand is, you know, her situation was complicated. Everybody's, all of our situations are complicated. We have nuances, we have time, we have trauma. Um, From what I understand about her story, she had been given other options and they weren't working for her. And that's one thing that I think that that takes that takes some time and education to understand about housing. It's not a one size fits all. And sometimes it takes two, three, four, even more attempts with a person to figure out what's going to work for them. You know, there's always so much going on with housing and services for unhoused people. But put the put those latest focused on encampments into perspective for, for us is the main thing Metro. Is this the main thing Metro is working on? Well, I think they've got a lot of whatever analogy we want, a lot of a lot of juggling plates or balls mm. in the air or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, you know, we had this $50 million of COVID funding that has been dedicated to um, to helping people who are unhoused. And uh, so a lot of the int- attention has gone towards encampments. Also transitional housing. There are two main types. We don't have time to get into them, but there are two main types of transitional housing. Um some of them are in church churches. We've done a show on that before. And um, and then also converted motels that are now a place that people can be as they're working on getting into permanent housing. Um, and then because those affordable units are scarce, you know, getting someone to their forever home is not an easy thing. So it's new this week that Metro has started talking about these latest encampments. What will you be watching for next? So there's a couple things I'm really interested in. I'm I'm working on a story right now, looking at this transitional housing in the motel, you know, the motel kind of situation that I just mentioned. Um, the complexities around that transitional housing has its own adventure to it, its own, its own maybe trauma, its own, um, it's transitional. You know, any of us who have gone through any transition, as we we are all doing all the time, you know that that's an uneasy place to be, and that's the same thing for people who are waiting to get into the permanent housing. And so I'm I'm working on a piece about that, and um, there are um, the the methods that Metro uses prioritizing these camps. So this phase two that we're talking about, um, there are some people that don't necessarily agree, some experts that don't necessarily agree with this type of campsite prioritization. There might be some um, unintended racial bias. There may be some um, other things that come into play. And as you can maybe imagine, it sounds like it might be healthier to take someone directly from a campsite into the housing that is very scarce, the permanent housing. So those are some of the things I want to look at. Um, You know, what are people saying are the healthiest? What are people who are going through it? How? What are they experiencing? Mm. And um, how this drawn out path to permanent housing is tough because when we're in transitional housing, we like to think that's only going to be a few weeks or a couple months. Some of the people I'm talking to have been in transitional housing for a year, 15 months, wow. um, maybe even longer. And so that's kind of what I want to look at. Tasha A.F. Lemley has long covered unhoused Nashvillians, including for the contributor WPLN 
and this is Nashville. Tasha, great to see you. Thanks for being here, and thank you for your reporting. Thank you, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, Butch Spiridon will join us to reflect on his three decades at the helm of the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corporation. We'll talk about the Titan Stadium deal and the Music City rebrand and so much more. What questions do you have for Butch Spiridon? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. You may have heard us refer to Nashville as the It City. We've done a whole episode on it after all, but it wasn't just that New York Times designation 10 years ago that catapulted Nashville into a tourist destination. Behind a lot of this growth is Butch Spiridon. For 32 years, he's been the CEO and president of the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corporation. During that time, Nashville gained three professional sports teams, a stadium and an arena and a convention center and so much more. He's even behind leaning into the nickname Music City as a brand. And now he's stepping down. But before he does, he's here in studio to reflect with us on his tenure. Butch Spiridon, thanks for being here, and welcome to This Is Nashville. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Anything that's tied to Nashville, I love. So thanks for doing this show every day. Oh, uh, yes, sir. We love doing it. Um, let me say to you, congratulations on your retirement. Let me ask you this. <laughs> As you prepare to leave, how are you feeling? Uh, uh, you know, some people have asked, is it bittersweet? Uh, yeah. Um Am I ready? No. Uh, but my decision uh, wanted to build back after COVID, wanted to leave it in good shape. But also, you know, 32 years here and 12 years before that in two other cities. So 44 years and I don't have an off button. Mm -hmm. So it's 24 7, 365, even on vacation, which I rarely take it. I work. Uh, and so stepping back would be an adjustment, but it's, it feels right. Are you excited about this adjustment of stepping back? Yeah, I, you know, I am. I've thought about it for a long time, talked about it with our board for a long time. I'm going to consult some with Nashville, so I have a net under me, so I don't just step off the cliff into the abyss without <laughs> knowing where I'm going. And I hope I pick up a few maybe consulting jobs around the country that just enough to keep me busy uh, and challenge me a little bit because that's the I'm a impatient uh, go for the brass ring kind of person so I know I just can't stop cold but I also make sure I have a boat to go to to go do some fishing and I understand. Change your scenery. Look after your tenure here. I'm, I'm sure you won't have any problem finding uh, <laughs> other work in different parts of the country. Well, now, now you were a big part of the Titans coming to Nashville many years ago, and now we're getting a new stadium. It's a $2 billion deal. It's pretty major for our city. Significant and, as hell. And, yes. and the NFL in itself. Why did you support it? Uh, the second time? Yes, or? sir. Well, it's kind of funny. People would go, oh, of course, you just want whatever. Uh, well, partly, I've always wanted to chase the Super Bowl. I always thought Nashville deserved it. So we needed to do something with the stadium 
regardless. And to get something that could at least get us one was that was the professional side. But the personal side was the city at a minimum owes $60 million on bonds and outstanding debt for repairs and improvements. So we're sitting on $60 million that out of the general fund that they have to pay. Then there's the obligation for some sort of renovation to keep it in first class. So whatever the number is and the arguments abound, but on the lowest end, it's probably half a billion. And on the highest end, might be close to two. So let's take the low end, half a billion, add 60 million of that. That's sitting there on the general fund that uh, city has an obligation. So getting it off the general fund was important to me. Let Nashville's taxpayer funds fund the things the city needs. And that may sound weird coming from me, but that was important. Um, then there is the we're generating zero property tax. So in addition to relieving the general fund, we have the ability to develop 100 acres and collect sales tax and property tax for the city. So the city gets that benefit. And then lastly, I grew up on the water. I am a water person. And all the failed attempts of developing the waterfront uh, are frustrating. And I think this almost or as much as possible guarantees it. So we develop our greatest asset which is untapped, we relieve the general fund, and then we get a facility that can generate some huge events and some big opportunities for Nashville. Okay, those are reasons why you support it. Let me ask you, did you have any issues with the deal? Um, you know, I, I probably had issues with the conversation because I didn't feel it was as fair as it needed to be. And typical, I dealt with it with the arena and the convention center. Opponents find arguments, and they can keep changing their arguments. And proponents, you put your plan out, and if your plan's good, you got to stick with it. And I think that's what the, the Titans and the, and the mayor did. Uh, I think maybe the the fund, the, I think the Titans are putting up $48 million in a fund the city can use wherever they want. Uh, so I think it, it got improved along the way, but I didn't really have any Issues because it's revenue bonds and it relieves the general fund. So we put the responsibility on our own backs. Now, a lot of people, a lot of residents had very big issues with this deal. We did a couple episodes Absolutely. about it here. What would you like to say to them? Um, well, I don't think, and it's it's hard to explain a $2 billion deal in short sound bites. Very true. To the community. It's just hard. And when somebody says, you know, it's going to cost the city $2 billion, well, I went to the hotel community and said, let's look at increase in the hotel tax. That's six hundred million of the two billion that's gonna come from the hotel community, from visitors. Uh, Amy and the NFL are putting up another five hundred plus billion. Uh, so you start all of a sudden over half of it's from those two sources. Then you look at sales tax, PSLs, it it's it's as good a case as you can make. Yes, it's a big number. Uh, the Titans are backstopping the loan. So if you look at what the city was faced with, if we do nothing versus what we got, I think the city won. I, I honestly do. And I'm stepping down, so I don't have to say, oh, it's a good deal. But it's a good deal. Now, getting the NFL to come to Nashville was a huge turning point for the city. 
Absolutely. In your view, what are some of the others? Um, well, we outkicked our coverage on the NFL, uh, getting the NHL, and maybe more important than getting the Preds was saving them when the owner was going to sell it to a Canadian and it was going to move. And we put a group together. We sold season tickets. We generated the PR behind it. And we kept the team. It was gone. I mean, I was in a meeting where I heard, I'm leaving, and if you screw this up, you know, there'll be hell to pay kind of conversation. So saving that team and showing the sports world that we weren't a one-and-done, we weren't a failure, uh, and— Proof is in the pudding since since that happened. The convention center, I think it's a good example of what the Titan Stadium can do. It's revenue bonds. It's visitor funded. Uh, I use the example of the JW Marriott. And everybody says, and the mayor would say, the city's not benefiting from tourism. I'd go, well, the JW Marriott was the Methodist publishing house paid $9,000 in property tax in 2014. The J.W. Marriott paid $3 million in 2019. The city benefits from these investments outside of the revenue that's paying for the bonds. And we have to remember that we don't have an income tax. We're a sales tax and property tax-based economy. So importing sales tax, way better than raising it. Now, 20 years ago, you started focusing on Nashville's brand as a city. Why? How, tell me how you landed on Music City. Uh, well, I'm quick to say there was a nickname out there. Music City USA was bestowed upon the city in the 1950s by a DJ. Um, I think it had run its course. Uh, the business community certainly was adverse to that brand with the, I'll say, the hillbilly, hee-haw, pure country connotation. So we looked at a lot of different things. But after the theme park closed and we were, how do we elevate ourselves? You know, my intuition said music is the best opportunity we've got, and it's a risk. But music as Music City USA won't work. We need to take a step back. We need to tell the full story. Start with the Fist Jubilee Singers, hit the founding of the Opry in the 1920s, Night Train in Nashville, the legends of rock that have lived or moved here or written or recorded here, and the other genres, gospel, Americana, bluegrass, barbershop quartet. They all are headquartered here, songwriters. Let's tell that story. Uh, so we had to sell it to about 140 people that worked on the plan. And knock on wood, it's worked beyond our expectations. What, tell me what were some, were some of the impacts of this rebranding. Uh, I would argue, and I would use, when Nissan moved here, moved their headquarters here, nobody wanted to come from L.A. Hmm. They moved here and they had to hire probably over half their staff because they all went, we're not going to that town. Uh, fast forward. Lions Bernstein, Amazon, Oracle. I don't think any of them would have come if we were in that other branded identity of hee-haw, hillbilly, you know, pure country town. And one of the best things that happened was the country music community embraced what we were saying. And our argument was, this will be good for you too. So we're not pushing 
country down. We're raising the other genres up. We're raising the story up. It's good for the creative community. It's great for the songwriters themselves. Uh, and the numbers speak for themselves, but I truly don't believe Oracle or Amazon would be calling Nashville home if there wasn't this perception that we're a community of creators. It goes beyond music, but it's uh, it's good for young people. Uh, it's good for it's good for the soul. I must admit, when I first heard about the opening for This Is Nashville, and uh, it was to move to Nashville, I did. The first thing that came to my mind was hee haw. Um, <laughs> But fortunately, uh, I came I to it. visit, and I learned it's much different than that. Now, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kalio Lake We're talking this hour with the outgoing head of the Nashville Convention and Visitor, Visitors Corporation, Butch Spirit. And tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. Now, Butch, you know, the tourism industry has exploded in the last 20 years here. And let's be honest, some people love it, some others loathe it. Oh, absolutely. I How? fall into that category. Uh I love it, and I I have my concerns. Well, tell me, how has the city benefited from this boom here? Uh, well, in 2022, visitors spent $9.2 billion in Davidson County. So when you're a sales tax-based economy, and that we're over, we're probably getting close to 40% of the visitor spending in the entire state. So it's property tax, it's sales tax, it's 70,000 jobs. Um, we don't recruit bachelorettes. We loathe the party vehicles. You know, a few pedal taverns in the beginning, that was cute, it was fun, but now it's a menagerie of stuff um, that also condones or encourages drunken public behavior. It's a very small percentage of our business, but it is the most visible. And it is what, I'd say in my learnings, what most Nashvillians dislike about tourism. Now, with the things that we love and the things that we loathe about the tourism industry, how do you see your role in that? Um, so we get all the blame, which fair Happens. or not, we get the blame. We are the tourism entity. Uh, we let the fuse. Um, but what, and we, we probably have spent more money and more time over the last four years trying to get the city to create new regulations or enforce existing regulations. We passed legislation at the state to give the city authority. We're not the enforcers, but we have sound ordinances. We have the ability to control the number of permits that are given to these vehicles. There are laws against public urination or defecation. We need to start enforcing this stuff. We need a, a bit of a crackdown to get it under control. And the frustration is we get that blame, and I get it. That's not a complaint. But we don't have that authority because I promise you, if you gave us or me the authority, if nothing else, we have a reputation for getting stuff done. We'd go get it done. So would you say that you have any regrets about what some people call creating this monster downtown? Uh, uh, yeah, I have the regrets that the lower, the five box of blocks of lower broad are kind of seen as a runaway train. Uh, I value the honky-tonks. I value free music 365 days a year. It showcases a lot of bands. It's a ecosystem for careers. Um but it doesn't need to be an unchecked 
as I said, runaway train. So that part I regret. I value the advancement of the dining scene. I value the advancement of our music scene, much broader than country, uh, the songwriting community, uh, the air service in this city. There's a lot of good things that have come out of this. And the free events, free world-class events. CMA is mostly free. New Year's Eve, July 4th, NFL Draft, uh, Live on the Green, we'll work to get it back. Um, Musician's Corner, uh, none of that would have happened without mm-hmm. the ecosystem that has occurred here. Why do you think the tourism industry took the trajectory that it did in downtown specifically, though? Um, you know, I think it started with free live music. 365 days a year. There was this nowhere else in the world. You know, every, cities had great music, but there's always a cover charge. And it's closed on Christmas or closed on Thanksgiving. We don't close. We keep it free. Uh, and for better or worse, I feel like COVID put it on steroids. All of a sudden, people went, wait a minute. It's still open. And they came and They've never stopped coming. Now, so we have a responsibility to rein it in a bit. And, you know, it's been profitable for the city. Hearing uh, about the billions of dollars that come into the city, that's very impressive. But some would argue that this tourism money has not really trickled down to all Nashvillians. What can be done to help the folks who live here, you know, f- feel and see the financial boom that tourism brings? Uh, well, I, there is a, a definite misnomer to to that point. And Mayor Cooper, for the first uh, couple of years of his administration, would say Nashville doesn't benefit from tourism. And I finally went, Mayor, I, I got to disagree. Um, and I used the property tax story of Sobro was industrial, surface parking lots, an eyesore, strip clubs, Greyhound bus station. Now it is property tax generating valuable real estate that puts people to work and puts money in the city's coffer. And then there's the side where we have to go to the state and ask for money. The state benefits strictly on sales tax or mostly. So generating that sales tax. Now, what I would say, we don't get enough of that back. We don't get our share back from the state. Uh, But that also comes with building a relationship with the state. So the money is there. The opportunities are there. And if this industry went away, maybe this is the best answer to your question. Every household in Nashville would have to come up with an extra $2,000 a year in some form of property or sales tax. So that's what we save Nashvillians. Uh, Then I believe Nashvillians get some pretty nice world-class benefits. Now, a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a friend who is a native Nashvillian, and they, they said that Nashville is, quote, diversely segregated, meaning that there's a growing number of diverse communities in the city, but for the most part, they are segregated from each other. You were a founding board member of the National Museum of African American Music, and you helped give the Fisk Jubilee Singers credit for the city's nickname, Music City. What's the potential for Nashville to become a truly diverse city rather than cosmetically? Uh, Well, we need to keep going on that path, first of all. Um, I think if people dug deep 
on both my career here and our organization's evolution. We work on that every day. Uh, We have a chief diversity officer who's out in the community. How can we help you? If it might be marketing, it might be sponsorship, it might be awareness in general, but and also about bringing uh, disjointed entities together. I think one of my fondest memories is bringing the head of the LGBT chamber said, "You need to meet the governor's chief of staff," and I brought them to lunch, and they both went. How do we not know each other? We need to do this more often. Yeah, we should have helped you on that. You took the wall down. So getting to know each other makes a big difference. Um, But it's never going to end. The fight and the job is never going to go away. But being intentional about it, I think, is how you get there. I feel like I feel like we've actually done a pretty good job on that. Uh, Anything we know about any time we can find a way to help. Uh, We do that. The Club Baron on Jefferson Street is an example. Maybe one of our weaknesses in that is we don't go around tooting our own horn about it. We go help and we hope maybe word of mouth, but just the evolution, they'll pay it forward. Hmm. Um, uh, North Nashville is a great example. And you mentioned the museum. I was the only original board member still standing when it opened. That It shouldn't have taken 22 years and I shouldn't have been the only board member. Still around. It goes to speak to your dedication. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with tourism executive Butch Spiridon, who's set to retire after three decades from the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corporation. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I've been talking with Butch Spiridon, the head of the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corporation, who will be stepping down from his position at the end of the month. Under Spiridon's watch, the tourism industry survived a flood, tornadoes, a pandemic, and an economic recession, and has become one of the hottest tourist destinations in the country. He has not only seen the city change a lot over 30 years, he's helped it make a lot of those changes happen. Now, let's continue our conversation. Butch Spirit, and thanks again to be, for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, take me back to your young professional days. How did, <laughs> how did you end up in this position? Um, I was the first salesperson that Mobile, Alabama ever hired. Um, worked there for six years. I always consider, I convinced my boss in Mobile to interview in Knoxville. He wasn't going to, he had turned him down. Uh, and I convinced him to t- talk to him. He took that job and I was able to run a really small department and learn a little bit more about the administrative side. Uh, then I spent six years in Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. uh, similar work. And then I always say, because Vanderbilt was on my resume, I got an interview here in Nashville, uh, we wouldn't hire somebody from Baton Rouge today. But back then, we were a $2 million operation with 19 staff people. Uh, so I was appealing to them, and 
uh, say I outkicked my coverage. You outkicked your coverage. <laughs> Have you always wanted to be in the travel industry? Uh, no, didn't know it existed. Uh, I was bartending when I was job searching, so I was in it by happenstance. Uh, but back then, there was no career path for it. You literally almost had to stumble into it, which I did, uh, and I I fell in love with it. It's different every day. You get to make a difference for a community because you're it's economic development in its purest sense, uh, and you get to be creative. So those things appealed to me. Uh, you know, whether you like our success or not, you can't disagree that we've been pretty good at what we what we're paid to do uh and i've I've done things i never would have dreamed i would get Mm -hmm. to do now you mentioned that the city saw vanderbilt on your resume Mm -hmm. tell me about the nashville you went to college in what was it like oh man uh mostly dead uh downtown was boarded up or adult peep shows. Um, there were honky-tonks around Vanderbilt because that's where we would go drink. Drinking age was 18. Mm-hmm. So think about it. I moved here from Mississippi, and it was beer was 18, alcohol was 21. But the speed limit was 75, wow. and the drinking age was 18. I'm like, I'm going to love it here uh, <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. Um, but I lived off campus for two and a half years. And literally learned the city. And even though it didn't have much to offer, Rotiers, Hermitage Cafe was a different name, Elliston Soda Shop. I loved it. I actually made the statement when I was graduating that this would be the only inland city I would ever live in. I said earlier, I'm a water person. Mm -hmm. I never thought I'd come back, but I went, I would live here. And no hotels, Opryland Hotel, uh, a theme park, you know, a regional theme park. There was nothing for me to say I would do this. Uh, but it, I came back and so 32 years later. 32 years later, you came back and, and you, you came back and talk to me about the 90s. Like, what did the city have going on as a destination back then when you started in the position? Um, everything, for the most part, was out at Opryland. Theme Park, Hotel, Opry House, CMT, TNN. It was all out there. And, and Opryland deserves the credit for building our industry. But also, why quickly, they didn't talk about Nashville. They didn't tell their clients. They just marketed Opryland. Mm-hmm. Go to the airport, come here, go back. Um, so I learned that they were in control of everything. So... That was the first lesson. Second lesson was they weren't listening to us because we didn't bring any value to the table. So we needed to demonstrate and add value to the city's efforts. And that took a pretty good while. And then the Houston Oilers moving here, the Nashville Preds, and Opryland closing the theme park opened the door for, you know, maybe, I don't know if we threw the life ring out or... We caught it, but we stepped into a role that said, we have to carry the city forward. We have to figure life after theme park and life when Opryland starts building hotels around the country. Because you used to get a five-year booking every year. 
Now you'd get it once every five years mm -hmm. when they go to D.C., Dallas, Florida, soon to be Denver. Different animal. Now, now, back when you started, Nashville lacked what a lot of bigger, more cosmopolitan cities had to offer. Here we are in 2023. Do you miss anything from the old Nashville? Uh, yeah, and when I hear people say I miss the old Nashville, I do two things. Well, I'll say this in three parts. First of all, my experience has taught me cities are either growing or dying. You don't sit still. And so you're going to gain some things and you're going to lose some things. Uh, so I always hope we gain more than we lose. Uh, but I miss Rotiers. I miss Hermitage Cafe. I often say I went to those places. You know, the people that are complaining, when was the last time you went? So my first comment is, if you're listening, go frequent those institutions that you love. Because there's no guarantee they'll be here in one, five, or ten years. Uh, change is inevitable. Uh, but I miss some of the quaintness, and I miss the easiness to get around. But then I look at the growth of our airport, uh, the number of destinations and the price points to get around. I look at the diversity of music in this city, and it's a source of pride for for me. Um and then I go, we got a, at election time, we got to elect people that want to manage our growth and take care of those things that we all like and find way. Because there's always a way to do it. It's not going to look, Nashville's not going to look the same way in five years that it looks today. We got a tweet right here from an account called The Nash Villain. While, quote, while many people in Nashville, including myself, have benefited financially from Butch Spirit's efforts, his work has been a double-edged sword. The growth he has promoted hasn't raised all boats. What does Butch think about the pro problems created by our growth? Um, first, I'm not blind, so I agree. The, the growth has created problems. Um, one of my first comments when I talk about this is we're not alone right now, not just in the United States, but globally affordable housing, workforce, uh, transit. You know, internationally, countries do mass transit better than the U.S. But those are growing pains without question. But they are problems that every city, homelessness, every city I talk to is facing these problems. So I look to, you know, elected leadership to take some responsibility and and bring the broader community together because they are public-private solutions, I believe, to affordable housing, to homelessness, to, to transit. You know, transit's a problem, but we voted it down twice. So you can get mad at me or business or whoever, but the public voted it down. Now, granted, wasn't explained very well either. We got to do a better job on that end. Uh, but they are solutions that take everybody, and there's got to be a willingness because it's going to take the full community. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour with the outgoing head of the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corporation, Butch Spiritin. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, you know, the most common issues that were born from tourism and development are, are shown here on housing costs. 
you know, you you spoke about the general commonality that pe- many people are having around the country and the world with housing, and it's getting harder to live for people here in Nashville. What can be done for the folks who feel like they've added to the soul of this city? Um, first, I love those people that have helped, and I believe the soul of the city is in our people, not in a building, not in some historic institution, but the creative culture of this city is without question the heart and soul of, of Nashville. Um, you know, when when Mayor Dean was mayor, we formed a music council, and we divided things up. And one of the things we did, we talked about affordable housing for the creative community. And we helped create Ryman Lofts. We, as an organization of Music City Music Council, down on Hermitage Avenue, across from the Hermitage Cafe. It worked. But we haven't done it since. So not in my wheelhouse, but for the life of me, I don't understand. There was a model that worked. Why didn't we do it again? There are, I talk to developers all the time who are willing to participate in the affordable housing side of it. So if it's cut a deal on property tax to keep the rate down, if they need to be rezoned, make sure you get something back in that. I I said this the other day to some people. When we have a developer that's going to add, in this case, retail, and they want something, a certain piece of that retail should be affordable for independent local businesses too. There are models out there and there are ways to do it. We have to have the will, we have to be creative, and we have to hold people's feet to the fire. Would you say that we also have to kind of have political cooperation in that? I mean, the posturing between the state government and the city has been uh, a lot. And it's been in headlines a lot for the past couple of years. Are you worried about continued interference from the state government on projects that are vital to the city? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, glad to hear the governor say this past session— was a bad example, and we need to do better. We need to improve that. Uh, we've been small group of really not even like-minded business people, just business people, been meeting one-on-one with the candidates. And to a person of our group, every candidate has heard, what are you going to do to rebuild that relationship? You don't have to like the state. You don't have to agree with them. But they make the rules, and they have the money. So... Without changing the state constitution, we have to find a way to work with them. Uh, What happened this past session is an embarrassment on every level, and we worked hard to try to tone it down. I went to the Capitol myself and had meetings and said, please back off. Take your pound of flesh somewhere, but don't destroy. We're the cash cow for the state. So... It's incumbent upon the new mayor to step forward and help rebuild that. And we have to hold the olive branch because they have the rules and they have the money. We're about to elect a new mayor Mm -hmm. in a couple months. What do you think the city needs in whomever takes the mayoralship? A consensus builder. We have to not only listen, we have to, if we're going to be that open, welcoming, inclusive city, that includes talking to people that aren't like-minded like you. It may not be fun. Uh, it's way more unpleasant. But 
we all want to see this city and this state thrive, prosper. That requires common ground. You know, four or five years ago, for whatever, we all know why. You know, we lost our way as a country, as a state, and even as a city to come together and find solutions. The success of Nashville, I've said it for years, I say it to cities that want to learn, collaboration, cooperation, compromise. That's how we got successful. We've lost our way. As we look to the future, what would you like to see? Where would you like to see Nashville be in the next 30 years? You know, a little more of what we're doing, smart growth, uh, development of the East Bank. We have real estate, so you don't have to cram it in and create more traffic. You have room to spread out downtown. So I think the East Bank is critical beyond the stadium. Stadium is the catalyst to get it done. But neighborhood, you know, riverfront activation so the city can enjoy it, our citizens can enjoy uh, the river along with affordable housing and necessary retail that that neighborhood needs, not just more restaurants or more hotels. Um, and then maybe putting music from a creative standpoint, all genres, back toward the forefront. It's our calling card. We need to be a little more proud of it. We need to make it easier for those creatives to live and work here. And whether they're side job for their dream, help them. How much time are you going to spend by the water real quick? Over half. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Butch Spiridon is the president and CEO of the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corporation. He steps down at the end of the month after working there for 30 years. Butch, thank you again for being here. Great pleasure to talk with you, sir. Thank you. Good job. And thank you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by executive producer Andrea Tuthope. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Listen back at This Is Nashville or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey on Online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.